Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning, Stuart, Florida, and everyone else who's listening through our streaming audio or on YouTube. Yes, and, and soon to be on iTunes. iTunes. Yeah, we've yeah. got that podcast coming. Nice. Yeah. So it's another hot day, Frank. Yeah, it's crazy hot. Yeah. Good morning, Leanne. Yes. Good morning. You know, we have a, we have a very special guest today. Yes, mm-hmm. we do. Yeah, mm-hmm. Dr. Jason McManus from Stuart Cardiology. Good morning, Jason. And William Jason McManus. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. He's very, very good cardiologist. He's got three names. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that the requirement? I think that's a Southern requirement, it's, it's, actually. It's a requirement yeah. for Southerners. Yeah. And he's from Mississippi. Okay. And it's also the requirement for assassins. If you think of all the famous yes. assassins right. in history. <laughs> right. They all Jason, have, what are you uh, not telling us? Well, they all, oh, have, they all have three names. <laughs> so on the drive over this morning... <laughs> yeah. Dr. Talton, Dr. Leanne. Yes. I was thinking how hot it was once again and thinking who was more responsible for settling Florida? Henry Morrison Flagler, the mm-hmm. railroad guy, mm-hmm. or Willis Carrier, mm-hmm. the air conditioning guy? What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Cue the fake laughter. I think it was the guy who invented Raid. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. But I, I really think it was the air conditioning people. And so I did a little research, yeah. obviously, because that's mm-hmm. what I that's do. What you that's do. what yeah. doctors do. Right. They look right. things up and right. they do research. The first air conditioning system was actually used by the Egyptians. Wow. They would take rugs and dip them in water and hang them over the door. And the air would hot air through. would pass through the watered down rugs. Mm-hmm. And you know who improved on that? 1752, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, of course. Right. The, yeah. the guy with the key in the kite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That guy. And, and then in the 1900s, Carrier yeah. brought it forth to yeah. our modern day air conditioning. Yeah. When do you remember having air conditioning? I mean, when you, when you were little, I assume that you didn't have it in your house, right? We had window units. Yeah. Okay. Up until... Did every room have a window unit? No. Every right. room didn't have a window. Right. Unit. Like For, bedrooms did, right? Right. Bedrooms did because every room didn't have windows. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the room, but every bedroom did. Uh-huh. And the main living area of the house did. And I remember we got a central air conditioner in the like, late 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it was like awesome. It yeah. was like when we got our first television. Yeah. It's like when blow dryers came out. Oh, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So speaking of fashion, Ira. Let's talk about fashion. Hey, let's do. You know, the clothes make the doctor. Is that so? Yeah. My Your mother, clothes do. Well, my mother-in-law, she judges her doctors by what they wear. She tells me that all the time. That doesn't surprise me. Patients usually comment on the outfit. They do. But what's inappropriate and what's appropriate for the office? Hey, what do you like your doctor to wear? Give us a call. Tell us what you like our, your doctor to wear at the office. 772-220-9788. We're here live for you. So when we were preparing for this show, we were looking at a few articles that talked about what is now considered professional doctor wear in this day and age. And it's interesting because you would think that uh, patients want doctors to be very professional. But this one article that we had looked at was saying the opposite, that you could be too professional and that would be off-putting for patients. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that, and let's refer to the article also, primary care medicine is a different beast. You know, it's less about a couple of visits for Botox injection like you might get from a plastic surgeon and more about the relationship between doctor and patient, which ideally will last for years and years, particularly in what we, you and I do. And what the doctor wears, part of the patient's first impression, can have an effect. For instance, it would be a little off-putting if I went in and saw a female physician and she was wearing a low-cut blouse and stiletto heels. I, I'm sure that would be 
very off-putting to you, Ira, that you would turn around, get the heck out of there. Well, <laughs> well, patients like to feel comfortable in the doctor's office. They like their doctor to look professional. I know patients that judge a doctor by their hands, mm -hmm. their nails. Are, are your nails clean? Are you well manicured as a, as a female physician? Yeah. And speaking of cleanliness, they just came out with new recommendations that white coats should probably be washed once a week. They right? should that, be. That most hospitals are incorporating that into their dress code policy. Do you wear a white coat? No, I don't wear a white coat. I've got white coat syndrome. Oh, my gosh. Which... And my <laughs> patients do as well. So I don't wear a white Frank, you're coat. You're going to need to keep your finger on the fake no. laugh button. I wear I wear a nice shirt and a nice pair of pants every day. And Friday yeah. is casual Friday. But casual doesn't mean sloppy. So you can dress casual and still be very, very, very professional. GQ, and, right? And GQ yeah. in the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I go more for that European look. And, and Dr. McManus, he's from the South. And I'm surprised... He did not show up today in a seersucker jacket and a bow tie because wow. that is that Mississippi look. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 what I, do you I, wear every day, Jason? I, there we go. There's the there laugh. That's what we need. I, I wear scrubs almost every day, uh, but that's more of a function of what I do. Uh, my type of work involves performing procedures in the hospital frequently, uh, and that is something that can come up short notice. So my office currently that I uh, work out of the most is – adjacent to uh, Tradition Medical Center. So I, I go back and forth between the clinic and the hospital uh, several times a day. And scrubs uh, certainly work well in that environment. So I've just chosen to wear those in the office too. Works out well for me, but that's more of a function of what I do. Well, we you look great in your scrubs today. <laughs> oh, thanks. And, and you're dressed very appropriately for radio. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Tie, ties are bad news. Ties are out. Why are ties out? They're harbingers of bacteria, particularly bacteria that can live on fomites. There's a word, fomites, F-O-M-I-T-E-S, yes. Fomites are inanimate objects like bed rails, chairs, neckties, where bacteria can live for several hours. And one of the worst things that a doctor who rounds in the hospital can do is go from bed to bed wearing a necktie because Clostridium difficile, C. diff, hmm. is a big harbinger on fomites. And, and it can live several hours on inanimate objects. And this is a bacteria where at one time, 20% of people in the hospital tested positive for C. diff. And with better hand-washing techniques and doctors not wearing neckties anymore. So the doctor who you like to see in a tie may be doing you more harm and good. Unless they got a tie clip for Father's Day. Perhaps. But tie <laughs> clips, uh, I don't know. And and medical students, you know, they have to wear the short white coats. It, it's a rite of passage. But I think that in the modern world where bacteria counts and infection rates count, don't wear a tie. And that really makes it not good, but professional dressing is a tricky word in the clothing context because what's professional, some people might not be professional to others. Yeah. And so the Mayo Clinic has pretty strict rules about professional dress. I don't know if any, did you ever rotate there? No, I, I, I did. Right. You, so when I you did, trained in Jackson, I did. And so I did a palliative care rotation there and females actually had to wear pantyhose. So, I mean, for, for my generation of people, that meant we had to go buy them. Question is, who knew? Literally, who knew? Whether you were wearing pantyhose or not. So, well, skirts. They wanted you to wear. Oh, skirts. you had to wear a skirt. You didn't have to wear a skirt. You could wear pants, but they wanted you to cover bare legs, even if it was just what peeked out underneath your pant with a with pantyhose. Isn't that? Ah, it feels a little restrictive. I think they've updated that. I'm not sure what the new policy is. So, what do you wear to the office? I usually wear, I prefer to wear pants every now and then I'll wear a dress. I like to wear jackets because again, I think that's a quick way to look more professional. And, um, you I always, don't know. You always wear eyeglasses. I, well, now you've that, got like 30 pairs. Now that I buy direct, uh, I buy direct.com is a website where you can buy like this pair of glasses. I probably bought for maybe $14 lenses included. 
Yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, what used to be a yeah. two, $300 pair of glasses, you can now have many pairs. Do yeah. not tell my husband how many pairs. I, I was, cause I was looking at you this morning and I know you look different, uh, but I, it's different glasses. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. Right. So I wear eyeglasses, which yeah. is convenient, you know, cause it's like a, it's a splash guard, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I wear a jacket usually, and I have to walk kids to school in the morning. So I can't, I can't have too many layers cause I get hot. I didn't realize glasses came in layers, but anyway, you know, the <laughs> audience doesn't know. I'm going to segue into Dr. McManus. Yeah. The audience doesn't know that Dr. McManus and I used to practice together. We used to be in the same practice. That's how I met him. Right. Yeah. yeah a few years back. Uh, yeah. In a multi-specialty practice. And uh, that's where I was introduced to Dr. Pearlstein and worked well with him in that capacity. So since you left that practice, tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing now. So I'm uh, one of the cardiologists in Stewart Cardiology Group, a uh, practice that's been in town for many years. Uh, we have non-invasive cardiologist and uh, interventional cardiologist, which is what I am, uh, and we can go into that in a bit, but it's uh, uh, a practice that's based in Stewart, but we more recently have uh, begun to focus more on St. Lucie County and the tradition area because that's certainly a growing area and there are lots of healthcare needs in that market. So uh, we actually have a new office that's on the lake, uh, not far from uh, tradition medical center. So uh, we are opening that on Monday. What lake? Well, I don't know the name of the No, lake. they call those, they when you're from the, not Florida, they, I think they're called ponds. Retention ponds? Retention ponds. But here we call them lakes. It's a beautiful but they lake. stock those with fish sometimes. And there is an alligator in that lake. All right. So it's a real lake. So now, what is an interventional cardiologist, Jason? So uh, beyond uh, a general cardiology fellowship, uh, you, there are several paths you can take. You can practice as a non-invasive general cardiologist, which is what most cardiologists are. Uh, but then there are other subspecialties within cardiology. Interventional cardiology is one. Electrophysiology is another one. Uh, as an interventional cardiologist, I focus more on uh, structural cardiac issues, coronary artery disease, uh, sometimes peripheral arterial disease, atherosclerosis. These are problems that people have that uh, need to be addressed through a procedure. Uh, in a way, we are referred to sometimes as plumbers, uh, people that have blocked arteries, heart attacks, uh, angina, uh, chronic chest pain, abnormal stress testing. Those are patients that come my way frequently, um, and those things are managed in the hospital environment. But I'm a bit of a hybrid, too, because I do a good bit of general card cardiology as well, and also veer into arrhythmias um, and some of the electrophysiology uh, categories, but I don't manage those specifically with procedures. So most of what I do is coronary artery, structural, or valve-related. So what kind of procedures do you do? Uh, cardiac catheterizations uh, is the kind of a mainstay of what I do, uh, but also opening of blockages with balloons, stents. Uh, stenting is something that most people are familiar with now. They either have had something like that, or they know someone or a family member, and it's a uh, vital therapy for people who uh, have those conditions. Uh, also, more recently, we have started to focus more on uh, structural and valvular heart disease. These are conditions that were exclusively managed uh, through open heart surgery for many, many years. And now we have techniques, technologies that will allow us to approach many of those problems through a catheter. So that's a very exciting field right now. And uh, one of the procedures we perform at the hospital is TAVR. Uh, more and more people might hear of that. It's an aortic valve replacement through a catheter as opposed to surgery. So that uh, certainly carries some advantages. It's not for everyone, but it is uh, a good option for many, many patients. So, so that's actually an acronym for transarterial valve replacement? Right. Transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Correct. Okay. I'm picking up on a southern accent here. You're from Mississippi? That's right. Yep. Uh, grew up around Jackson, Mississippi in the middle of the state, capital city, and uh, did my undergraduate there and my medical school there as well. So I was at University of Mississippi Medical School. It's it's based in Jackson at a large uh, university hospital there and did not care for cold weather as I looked around for various training programs and 
most of those interviews happen in the winter. And uh, that was enough to let me know I wasn't used to that and didn't want to deal with it. So I uh, did my internal medicine residency in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, then went to New Orleans to Ostner Clinic for cardiology fellowship. That was for three years. Excellent uh, experience there. Training was wonderful. And uh, then I went back to Charleston for some additional training for interventional cardiology. Where'd you go to medical school? At, at uh, University of Mississippi Medical School, uh, uh, the four-year program there. Now, is that why you decided to go in cardiology? Because heart disease is so prevalent in Mississippi. It's got like the worst heart disease of any state in the country. Yeah. I mean, I've had people ask me that before because you really are immersed in it. Uh, unfortunately, that population is, uh, uh, there's a really high prevalence of, uh, of cardiovascular disease. Uh, lots of reasons for that. Lifestyle. Uh, the climate is not very... Uh, uh, hospitable as far as exercise goes. Uh, the, the diet is certainly a, a challenge for a lot of those people. So I think Hines County, at least at one point, that's where I was born, was the most obese county in the nation, I believe. So as you can imagine, the cardiovascular disease that comes with that is uh, pretty profound. So yeah, I, had, uh, I mean, I have to admit, my uh, one of my attendings when I was uh, a medical student was a cardiologist, and he certainly uh, swayed me in that direction. I, I, I realized how important it was to treat that population. And Do you think that population is so unhealthy because of diet or poor education or combination of both? It's a combination. I, I, there's uh, you know, many people that uh, truly don't understand the implications of what their diet may be uh, you know, contributing to. So uh, if I think many of these patients, if they understood uh, what might be down the road, they would have done some different things early on with lifestyle to hopefully uh, avoid those those conditions. So yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, a lot of education, uh, awareness, uh, but then also motivation. You have to understand what the implications are. How do you find practicing in Stewart, Florida? Do you feel that the patients here are more amenable to diet, exercise, your recommendations? I've, I've been impressed with, uh, you know, a lot of patients are motivated that I see in this area. They, uh, uh, they want to stay active. It's an active community. Certainly uh, with, uh, uh, with the aging population in the area, retirement population, uh, people move here to be active and uh, they want to stay active. They want, don't want to be limited by cardiovascular disease or any other issue for that matter. So uh, I find these patients to be uh, quite motivated. So, Jason, um, you're raising a family in Stewart? I am. Uh, I have my wonderful wife and two kids, daughter and a son. And my daughter just th turned 13 last week, so uh, that's fun. And uh, great kids. My son's nine, and uh, they are in the schools here. Love it. Uh, we've really enjoyed living here. And they know Dad's on the radio today? Yeah. They are, are they listening? <laughs> I think they are, yes. Uh, I didn't check with them before I left this morning. They, but I they started hearing you talking about work and they're like, mom, this isn't, this isn't what we wanted to hear today. Yeah, it's probably not the most exciting topic for them. <laughs> hey, Dr. McManus's kids, if you're listening, give us a call. 772-220-9788 or 772-220-WSTU. So today's show was intended to be about atrial fibrillation, which is why we have a cardiologist here today. So what is atrial fibrillation? Before he answers that, do you like to go to concerts? I, I know Dr. McManus loves concerts and he's a guitarist. We're going to get into that. But sometimes, sometimes I will actually go to a classical concert for a full orchestra. And I love watching the conductor because the conductor yeah. really leads the orchestra. And that's how I look at the heart for those people who want a simplified explanation Everything needs a conductor, and your heart is the organ that needs the conductor the most. And that conductor, which I like to call the SA node, sinoatrial node, tells the rest of the heart what to do. But if everybody, I'm hearing a lot of knocking, yeah. and, and there's no door, so it's very frightening. So anyway, if everybody was the conductor, then the orchestra wouldn't play anything. And that's kind of what happens with atrial fibrillation. That conduction is occurring from all these different places, but yet no, nothing really gets through. What do you think about that analogy? That, that's a that's a very good analogy, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it, it's it's the disorder of the electrical signals passing through the atrium of the top of the heart, 
that would otherwise be uh, very orderly, but then they become disordered and it causes some issues. So, so yeah, that's a, that's an elegant way to describe it. Uh, I like that. How common is atrial fibrillation? Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's more and more common uh, as the population ages, as uh, things like obesity continue to be an issue and all of the, uh, the conditions that go with obesity, it tends to be more and more common. There's uh, over the population over the age of 65, it's as much as one in 10 people. Uh, wow. Around 9%, maybe a little bit higher. Uh, based on the most recent numbers. So uh, it's a fair number of people. Uh, even if they don't talk about it, most all of us know someone who has atrial fibrillation or have had it at least at one point in their life. So people refer to it as atrial fibrillation or just AFib, right. correct? Right, right, right. Uh, you know, atrial fibrillation kind of, a, yeah, if you say it every day, it's easy, but you know, AFib is, uh, rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. I think people feel comfortable with that. So you'll hear uh, on television, sometimes commercials, they'll, they'll refer to it as AFib. So. And we're seeing a lot more commercials about AFib. And I think that's probably because of the treatment. Right. But some of these commercials say that 15% of all strokes are due to atrial fibrillation. Is that true? Or is the percentage actually higher than that? Yeah, there's uh, several series that have looked at that. Uh, I mean, I've, as high as 22%, uh, some of the, uh, some of the more recent literature has suggested is as high as 22%. I think there was a, uh, study a retrospective from 2014 that mentioned there's 3 million strokes they analyzed and saw 22% uh, within that series uh, had stroke from atrial fibrillation as a source. And then in the population older than 85, I believe the number was as high as 40% of strokes were deemed to be from atrial fibrillation. So is all AFib the same or are there different types of AFib? There are different presentations, different types of atrial fibrillation. So uh, some people are in AFib all the time. We refer that uh, we refer to that as permanent atrial fibrillation now within our literature, but it's chronic atrial fibrillation is the other term for it. These are people that are in the rhythm all the time, and you hope that they are asymptomatic from it. So uh, it is managed with medications uh, most of the time, and uh, they live their life. Uh, some of these people, you would never know that they're in atrial fibrillation. Some patients themselves don't know that they're in atrial fibrillation. Um, so, so that is one version. The other version that's more common is paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. It means that it comes and goes. Uh, that could be brief episodes lasting for several minutes, or it might be that they're in it for several days, and then they go back to a normal rhythm on their own. Uh, that is... Uh, sometimes more challenging to treat because if they're in a normal rhythm and their heart rate is slow, but they're in atrial fibrillation and their heart rate is fast, uh, we uh, sometimes are posed with a challenge of treating that with medications to slow down the fast heart rate without slowing the normal rate too much. So we call that tachybrady syndrome, six sinus syndrome. It goes by different terms. So that's, uh, that's another type. So people can live with chronic atrial fibrillation. We don't necessarily need to put them back into a regular rhythm, correct? Right. Uh, yeah, th there was a, a time not that long ago where we uh, really felt that everyone needed to be back in a normal rhythm because it makes sense. Why not? Why wouldn't we let the electrical system do to what it was uh, always doing before it, the atrial fibrillation showed up? But from a... Uh, from a symptom perspective, from a stroke risk perspective, uh, large studies have not shown a major difference between maintenance of normal rhythm or sinus rhythm versus an asymptomatic patient that is otherwise in atrial fibrillation. Uh, the stroke risk is pretty similar. So we do uh, view those patients equally as it relates to stroke risk. And tell our audience why you're more prone to have a stroke with atrial fibrillation. Right. So the, when the atrium, the top chamber of the heart is fibrillating, which is what we're really referring to when we say atrial fibrillation, the, the, the otherwise rhythmic nature of the movement of the heart is interrupted. So the atrium uh, does beat just like the ventricle, the bottom chamber does, but, uh, but it's not quite as vigorous with each beat. It's not so critical to the, uh, to the function of the heart, even though it does play a role. When, it, when atrial fibrillation is there, uh, the atrium quivers, basically. It uh, does not contract rhythmically. 
it is uh, quivering and there is a chance for blood to sit still, even for a brief period of time. And when blood sits still, it coagulates. And that's the problem. If a blood clot forms in the left atrium, it could theoretically move from there to the left ventricle. And then at that point, it can go anywhere in the rest of the body. Unfortunately, the first stop uh, for those blood clots uh, commonly is the brain. And the brain is a... Um, a sensitive organ uh, that is uh, very dependent upon good blood flow to all segments. So when you obstruct that flow with a blood clot, uh, it causes an issue, either a, either a, a stroke or a mini stroke, TIA, transient ischemic attack. It, it, those neurologic events can be devastating. So other than blood clots and strokes and all of this is pretty bad. So if you have atrial fibrillation, you, you want to see someone like Dr. McManus at Stewart Cardiology to talk to you about what you need to do for your particular form or case of atrial fibrillation. But other than stroke, what are the other dangers of having atrial fibrillation? Well, the, the, the other dangerous component of this could be related to uh, the atrial fibrillation itself. If the heart rate is too fast for too long, uh, you can imagine if you're sitting still, but atrial fibrillation has tricked your heart into going 120 or 130 beats per minute. And it stays that way for weeks on end. Theoretically, it could weaken the heart muscle. It could produce the effect of heart failure. Uh, you know, thankfully, most patients are at least uh, somewhat symptomatic prior to that reaching that point, and they'll come see us uh, or or at least present to the hospital, and and then it's managed before it gets to that point. But that is uh, uh, theoretically something that can happen, and we do see it from time to time. So, what causes it? What causes AFib? So uh, for many people, it's a bit of a mystery. You know, we always, anytime I meet a patient in atrial fibrillation, I always try to you know, rewind the tape and try to sort out exactly what it was for them that put them into that position. Uh, I mean, there are cer uh, certain reversible disorders. Uh, thyroid disease uh, can contribute. Uh, so uh, certainly that's something that we look into. Uh, something I see more and more of contributing is sleep apnea. Uh, that going back to uh, obesity, which oftentimes is correlated with uh, the sleep apnea, but not always. Uh, Post-operative state, we frequently get called to see patients in the hospital who are in a, uh, uh, they've had a surgery, perhaps there's inflammation with the surgery, there may be dehydration, if their hydration status is not adequate, that can be enough to put people into atrial fibrillation. Uh, illnesses, infections. Uh, so can someone have like temporary atrial fibrillation where they just have it when they're in the hospital and very sick and then it never comes back or? Sure. There is a uh, low in atrial fibrillation. We sometimes uh, refer to that. Uh, it, uh, it can be a singular event where it was simply provoked by some unusual stress or infection or surgery. But, you know, we, we do find that oftentimes those patients, even though it may have been discovered in that environment, they may be having other events and we have to be very careful to uh, evaluate for that moving forward because they may be having subclinical or silent atrial fibrillation episodes that would still put them at risk. We've got to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back.
And welcome back. This is Dr. Ira. I'm here with Dr. Leanne and Dr. William Jason McManus from Stewart Cardiology, an invasive cardiologist. Notice I said invasive, not intrusive. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> There's a big difference there. And we have a caller. We uh, do. And I think it's Alan. So, Alan, you have a question for Dr. McManus. Yes. Uh, good morning, doctors. Uh, I do have a question. On Tuesday morning, my best college buddy uh, was taken to heaven. And uh, he had a history of uh, cardiac problems, uh, intestinal blockage, diabetes. But I was talking to him on Sunday and Monday, and he sounded... Uh, great and everything was fine. And I even said to him, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, but what happened was he told me both on Sunday and Monday that his neck was bothering him. And on Tuesday morning, he died because of a uh, clot that went to uh, his brain. So my question is, how can you tell the difference between a minor stiff neck or something that uh, uh, that doesn't need to be checked out? Or should he have gone to the hospital immediately after two days of neck soreness? Well, sure. I can uh, I can shed some light on that, hopefully. Uh, sorry for uh, for the loss of your friend. That's uh, that's uh, that's too bad. So, um yeah, that it's a very difficult thing when we when we look back on these situations and try to sort out exactly what brought them uh, to that point. But you know, neck pain uh, it, it is something that you know, can represent a cardiac issue. We sometimes say any complaint from nose to navel theoretically could be cardiac. Uh, you know, certainly any persistent symptom that is unusual uh, makes the person uncomfortable. And there's really not an explanation deserves to be uh, uh, checked because uh, some of these things can be quite difficult to pinpoint, and uh, and sometimes no one you know no one really enjoys going to the emergency room, but uh, but it's a very valuable service to make certain that everything is okay. And of course, if there is a problem, it needs to be treated very quickly. So, yeah, very uh, very difficult situation, but uh, but yeah, making certain that uh, you know if you pay attention to any uh, potential warning signs. You don't want to write uh, things off. Of course, you don't want to be an alarmist. You don't want to go to the emergency room every time you feel something. But if there's a, an issue that doesn't have an explanation and it's persistent, that certainly deserves further look. So we're talking about atrial fibrillation and this patient called in right, right on schedule asking questions about symptoms. What are the symptoms of atrial fibrillation? I mean, you said they're silent. So how would anyone know? Well, sure. So, you know, the, the most common uh, symptom that we have with atrial fibrillation is uh, palpitations, fluttering in the chest. Uh, you know, these can be uh, manifested in various ways, but most people will describe it as a fluttering in the chest. And, um, and sometimes lightheadedness, sometimes people may feel short of breath or anxious. Uh, occasionally they'll feel chest discomfort. Uh, so, you know, those are things to watch out for. Thank you, Alan. Did that answer your question for you? Yes, it did. Uh, as far as, well, one other follow-up though, as far as fluttering, uh, is there a time period on that? I mean, if it happens just for like a minute or two, is that something to get checked out or is it, are you talking a longer time period? Sure. That's, that's a great question. So everyone has fluttering in the chest, I would imagine at some point. Uh, and you know, those are, those are generally benign events. I mean, that, that could be what we call PVCs, PACs, premature ventricular or atrial beats. Those are completely harmless, but you can feel them certainly, but they're fleeting. They generally don't linger for very long. These types of arrhythmias, uh, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, those more concerning arrhythmias generally last for a bit longer. The symptoms are much more pronounced. Uh, so yeah, certainly if you're feeling palpitations that are lingering or they have any other symptoms associated with them, shortness of breath, chest discomfort, um, lightheadedness, those types of things certainly deserve a closer look. And our patients, not not everyone listening has a cardiologist. So, I mean, would this be a reasonable thing to just call your primary care doctor about? Well, sure, if, it's, if the symptom is minor, uh, and but it's enough to notice, then yeah, certainly that would be worth reaching out to a primary care physician. Uh, they could evaluate the patient and EKG is uh, is 
it's an old tool, but it's a very useful tool in that situation. That's how we make the diagnosis almost always. So uh, that works. And before we disconnect Alan from, from the call, I'm going to ask a follow-up question for myself and for Alan. Is there anything a patient can do at home if they feel like they've gone into atrial fibrillation? Well, uh, sure. So, I mean, if, if, if you're convinced that you have atrial fibrillation and it's a new thing, uh, I mean, that's, and it hasn't been evaluated, of course, seeking uh, medical care is always going to be the first, uh, the first choice. Now, some people have a known history of that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation that we discussed previously, where uh, maybe they've already been evaluated, they're being treated for it, they're taking appropriate measures to lower the risk of stroke. Um, if they go into atrial fibrillation, uh, making sure that you're well hydrated. Sometimes cold water can make a difference. So-called Valsalva maneuvers sometimes can help. Um, what That's straining down right, really hard? That, that kind of uh, bearing down against resistance, uh, you know, sometimes can make a difference, but you want to be careful with that too. Sort I mean, of like a bowel movement or childbirth. Uh, uh, true. That, right. that, that type of... Uh, You've done that recently. What, Ira, childbirth? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so... Well, Right. So, <laughs> Alan, we want to thank you so much for calling in. We want to encourage other listeners to call in because it certainly makes the show more interesting. So I appreciate your participation and tell your friends. Right, well, you. I just I just want to say that I am a patient of Dr. Pearlstein, and it gives me comfort to know that if I have any symptoms that I can uh, contact him almost immediately and, if necessary, even come to uh, – uh, get an appointment on the same day. And, and so uh, I'm very pleased with this kind of primary care that is uh, coming into the medical system now. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for calling in this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. So you've told us today that it's important to improve the, the output of the heart to prevent heart failure from atrial fibrillation. What medications do we use to treat atrial fibrillation? Uh, well, yeah, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's an excellent topic because there's uh, several sides of it. So the first part of it is uh, if I have a patient that I'm seeing in the hospital or in the clinic and they are symptomatic from the atrial fibrillation, they are uh, perhaps dealing with a, an unusually fast heart rate or maybe just the irregularity of the rhythm is enough to cause symptoms, then you know, we frequently rely on medications, beta blockers, uh, calcium channel blockers, those types of medications are commonly used to try to regulate uh, the heart rate and minimize the symptoms associated with it. So that's on uh, one side. There is another side of that medical therapy, which would be trying to maintain a normal rhythm. And that's where antiarrhythmic medications come into play. And the, the reason why we don't use those routinely is they do have side effects that we will attempt to avoid. Uh, but for some patients, that makes a lot of sense. Now that's on the, the treatment of the rhythm or the heart rate. Um, extremely important on the other side of this is the reduction of the risk of stroke. And at the end of the day, that's really the, uh, the, the critical concern with atrial fibrillation uh, is minimization of that risk. So that's where uh, these blood thinner anticoagulant agents come into play. The and most famous of which being? Warfarin or Coumadin uh, was the traditional choice for many years. It's still there. It's, uh, it is still a, a valid approach. Over the last few years, uh, for many reasons, there are novel uh, therapies that have come onto market that have uh, uh, changed the way we manage this slightly. So we can talk about that. So back in the day, so to speak, they used to use digoxin, or linoxin, digitalis to treat atrial fibrillation. But that therapy has seemingly gone by the wayside. Why is digoxin no longer used as a therapy for atrial fibrillation? So yeah, uh, digoxin is, uh, it's still out there. It's one of the oldest medicines around and uh, it works uh, fairly well to slow the heart rate. So some people that were in atrial fibrillation with a rate that was too fast, digoxin was uh, previously used to help control the rate. And it did that pretty well. But uh, more recently, there was a study published several years ago that showed people that were managed with digoxin for that purpose uh, carried a 20% higher mortality rate. Uh, so, so that led to people veering away from that therapy. The, uh, I mean, there was never a, a specific contraindication for that, but, uh, but it did uh, cause uh, many practitioners to, to rethink the role of digoxin. You know, our co-host, 
Leanne, Dr. Leanne is an artist. Okay. And we've good. all been to art museums and we've seen the Renaissance artists. And you would think that all these artists were very religious people because they painted people with halos around them, almost like they were angelic. Until I took a tour at the National Gallery of Art, and it was explained to me that they actually painted what they saw, which meant that these artists were chewing on digitalis root in the, 19, in the 1600s. Uh, it's, it's, it's from a plant. They were chewing on the root. And one of the signs of digitalis toxicity is visual changes. And you actually see halos. It gives you kind of a halo effect. Anybody ever tell you that in your practice? They come in and they tell you they've seen halos and do you still check <laughs> right. digoxin levels? Yeah, I mean, th thankfully, I've never seen anyone express visual uh, disturbances from di uh, digoxin toxicity. It's out there. I've just never seen that personally. We still do use digoxin when we have to, but it's generally a last resort. Uh, uh, but that is a, a fascinating uh, vignette, of course, with, uh, uh, I mean, they they've said Van Gogh and Monet, I think actually had, they think they may have had some influence from digoxin, perhaps. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> other than medication, are there any other therapeutic measures which you might say have some shock value in AFib? Ah, yes, that was. That's, so, a, that's an Ira joke that, that for everyone a, listening. That was a lead in. Yeah, that was yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, so. Uh, Depending on the situation, and of course, everyone is different, but if someone is in atrial fibrillation and it's clearly causing a problem uh, that cannot be addressed through medications, we will sometimes do maneuvers to convert the heart back to a normal rhythm through what's called cardioversion. Uh, that's done in the hospital under sedation, under a brief uh, uh, amount of general anesthetic. And uh, then we use an electrical current to shock the heart back into rhythm, to put the electrical signals back in order. Mm -hmm. Now, you you mentioned that we were going to talk about blood thinners, and I think that that is definitely a discussion that the audience wants to yeah, hear. Yeah, people want to hear about blood thinners. Yeah. Right. Well, sure. So, you know, there's uh, it, it was previously very simple. It was uh, warfarin, Coumadin. Uh, that was really the only option. And what's and, the problem? What's What was the, the main inconvenience of that? Yeah, several. So, you know, the, it had... It has to be monitored very carefully. Um, you would have to go for blood work, uh, sometimes weekly. Um, if uh, you become quite stable on warfarin, it could be spaced out to two or sometimes three weeks. But uh, but it does require frequent monitoring, and that's through either a blood draw or more recently. A and everything stick. affects the levels, right? Right. I mean, diet, any green leafy vegetables that we would otherwise encourage people, cardiac patients to uh, consume, will throw off. Uh, your therapeutic levels of that medicine. Antibiotics. Antibiotics, right. Uh, just, I mean, changes in diet, even travel I've seen, but that might be related to diet. I mean, but there are all sorts of things that can uh, cause uh, these numbers to be out of the therapeutic range, which yeah. is an issue. Yeah, I got around that diet thing several years ago with my patients because, well, doctor, you're telling me I can't have grapefruit juice because I'm on a statin, but actually you can. And we'll get into that right now because you can have up to a gallon of grapefruit juice a day, more than a gallon. It's actually a quart more than a quart of grapefruit juice a day will affect your level. But the fact that you can't take statin medications and eat grapefruit is really not true more so with simvastatin than any of the other ones, but the newer statins don't worry about the grapefruit so much, but the green leafy vegetables, but I love salad bars and you're telling me I have to lose weight. So I got to the point where my patients on Coumadin, I just tell them to eat what they want, be consistent. If you're going to have a salad every day, have a salad every day and I'll work around it and manage your Coumadin appropriately. I would have to dose them more because it's very high in vitamin K and vitamin K causes increased clotting and will lower the value of that test that we try to keep people at a certain level on in, uh, who are on Coumadin therapy, the INR test. And monitoring INR looks different now than it used to, right? I mean, oh, it's people, very different. People aren't going to labs necessarily anymore, sure. right? Well, that's right. I mean, there, so the management of Coumadin, of, of warfarin, has improved over time. I mean, so it's not nearly as uh, uh, as much of an issue as it used to be, but, but it is very individual. I mean, each patient uh, has different dietary needs. Uh, different regulation of the doses that they're on. So it does require a, 
a close relationship with their physician to make certain that it's uh, dosed appropriately because it is a medicine with real implications. And they're testing at home now? It can be done at home uh, for some people that uh, that meet the right criteria. It can be handled at home through a finger stick monitor and uh, they have a relationship with the monitoring service and and we help tailor the therapy based on those results. So it can be much easier. So other than Coumadin, what are we doing? What are we doing these days? Well, so uh, the the novel anticoagulants. These are the newer agents that are on the market that have several advantages. Uh, the uh, the the biggest one is the lack of testing. Uh, it does not require uh, routine monitoring. Uh, just what, like you. What are they? Before. What are some of them? So uh, the first one on the market was Pradaxa. Uh, Dabigatrin is the the other name for it. Uh, then there was Zarelto, Eliquis. There's another one, Savisa, that's not used very often. But uh, those are medications that are dosed either once or twice per day, depending on the, the medicine. And uh, they do not require routine monitoring through INR like Coumadin does. Are also. they doing as good of a job preventing strokes? They are. They've been proven to be quite effective. And, uh, and from a risk perspective, of course, blood thinners, anticoagulants, can increase the risk of bleeding. Uh, they are, uh, they have been proven in numerous trials to be safe. So they have been a, uh, a preferred choice of most patients nowadays. So other than the cost and the fact that the advertisements say that they're for non-valvular heart disease, right. can you explain to our audience the difference between valvular and non-valvular heart disease with atrial fibrillation? Right. That, yeah, that definition really seemed to come about um, when these medicines came out, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of us scratching our heads trying to figure out exactly what they meant by that. Uh, but I, basically, the way uh, we've interpreted that uh, is if you've had a valve replacement, um, uh, certainly a mitral valve replacement, um, that is a medicine you would want to avoid. Um, uh, there are certain uh, caveats to that where they might uh, benefit from that medicine anyway. Certainly, mechanical valves are off limits for these medications. Uh, those are patients that absolutely must be on warfarin. Because uh, they haven't been tested with these medications or because they won't work? Well, uh, it's there's speculation, but they this that's a hard study to do in humans uh, because it would require taking a patient who's otherwise stable on a standard of care and then switching them to a medicine that hasn't been proven. Uh, the mechanism is different. Uh, between uh, these novel anticoagulants and warfarin. So that's not something that uh, many people are willing to study that rigorously. Okay. So I understand that aside from treating abnormal rhythms, you provide your own rhythm. You're a bass guitarist, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right? And uh, so I've, uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't ever consider myself to be a formal musician, even though I've kind of found my way into that over the decades. But you're here on the Stewart music scene. I've seen you perform. I've seen you at at some, some of the local bars outside. Right. So I was. Sailor's Return. Correct. Yeah. I was, uh, uh, for many years, uh, was part of a band, uh, relapse band, uh, is made up of several, uh, local physicians and, and a few others, a few other friends that would work with us. So, uh, you know, we were together for, I think about six years, but we recently, uh, and it took a break from that. So I'm still playing music, but uh, but nothing organized at the moment. Uh, a lot of physicians in town play music. I've lived in a lot of areas, and I've never lived in a community that has so many musician physicians. It's impressive. I, Are you looking to join a new band? <laughs> not, not right now. I think my kids keep me busy and uh, enjoying that time, really. So uh, eventually I'll get back around to it, I, I'm, I'm sure, because it is something that I enjoy. What kind of guitars do you have? Uh, my my favorite bass is a, a, a Rickenbacker 4003. Uh, have a jazz bass, Fender jazz bass, uh, P bass. Those are my favorites. Are you going to play something for us today? <laughs> not today. No? Not, not today. Uh, yeah, not, Would you be not willing to come back and play something for us? Uh, maybe. maybe. If I, can, we, we, can we change our intro to be like a... Uh, you make it sound like the Seinfeld theme? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, that would be. But then that's a show about nothing. And, and I don't want that to be our reputation, that we're a show about nothing. Yeah, well played. Smart we got to shape up then. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So do you, do you still practice and, and play the guitar a lot? Sure. I mean, I, I play drums sometimes, uh, some guitar. Just, uh, I'm, my, uh, my kids, uh, my daughter certainly is, uh, is uh, a quite a talented musician, so I'm really enjoying living with her, too. What does she do? She plays flute, uh, piano. She plays some drums and really is uh she understands theory and reads music unlike her dad 
So, uh, so it's been really uh, enjoyable to watch them go through that process. So you're a brilliant cardiologist. Thank you. Infamous guitarist. Sure. Any other hidden talents or hobbies you want to tell us about? Uh, I mean, I, so I uh, enjoy exercise. I try to stay uh, fit and being follow through with what I recommend and uh, enjoy fishing. Of course, the right place to be for that. Uh, boating in general, any chance to be on the water is a good thing. So yeah, that's uh, this is a, a nice community to live in to uh, explore all of those options. So I think we're still considered the Marlin capital of the world here in yeah, Florida. Uh, sailfish. Sailfish yeah, capital of the yeah, world. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And what do you do? Do you work out at a gym? Do you work out at home? No, I've never been much of a gym person. I just uh, jog in the neighborhood, enjoy biking, things like that. Just you you've been a great guest this morning. Well, thank you. Would Thanks you come back? Me. Would you come back and talk to us about other heart issues? Oh, of course, I'd be happy. To Maybe around Valentine's Day would be appropriate. <laughs> That's usually the time, right? So, sure, sure. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for uh, having. Me. And thanks for being on Paradox. Thank you, Dr. Talton and Dr. Perlstein. Excellent. Oh, we have more time. Oh, we're gonna, we can take one more call if you want to call us. But we have other questions for you if you want. Sure, I'm okay. here. Okay, these newer novel therapies. Yes. Any antidotes if you overdose on them? Yeah, that's a big question from patients is, you know, right. there's no there's no reversal. I don't want to take something that has no reversal. That's right. I mean, that was a, certainly a concern of ours for a while. Uh, so there are reversal agents that exist. Uh, these are you know, restricted to hospitals, of course. Um, you know, those are becoming more and more available. So they are used in extreme situations. Thankfully, these medicines wear off pretty quickly. So even without that, it's not necessary to reverse uh, in most situations, but it's good to know that those medicines are out there. Thank you so much once again. And thank you for tuning in to Paradox.